You know, it's sort of two things. One is people wonder if the stories they have to share are worth sharing, whether people want to hear them or not. And then the other one is, can I do that well? For the first one, I always tell people that if it means something to you, it can mean something to other people. One of the tragedies sort of related to Homework for Life is that people say nice things to us quite often, very kind things to us. We don't remember them. You know, I know for as an elementary school teacher that you need to say six positive things to a student to negate one negative comment. Hey, my dear listeners, welcome back to yet another episode of Inspire Someone Today. We are on episode 99, yes, one short of the milestone 100. Before that, we have a fantastic guest today. So, who do we have today? We have with us Matthew Dix, a well-known author, writer. He's also a storyteller, marketing and storytelling consultant, speaking coach, elementary school teacher, wedding DJ, has 24 years of teaching experience, is a former West Hartford Teacher of the Year and a finalist for Connecticut Teacher of the Year Award. It's an absolute joy and pleasure to bring Matthew Dix on this episode of Inspire Someone Today. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you very much. I will tell you that uh, my children would tell you I am not famous at all. So um, so I don't want your audience to get too excited. It's um, It's just me. That's so kind and modest of you. <laughs> So Matt, with all the accolades uh, your way, with so much of what you have accomplished, people who have kind of uh, read your uh, books, who have heard your backstory, I think there is a lot more that has happened in the past than what it is today. Would love to hear what's the backstory of uh, Matt. How did those incidents shape you to be the person that you are today? Oh, well, that's a <laughs> that's a long story, but I can tell you you know, I, I grew up in a home that was uh, challenging. You know, I was the child of divorce and uh, I had a stepfather who was not the best person in the world. So when I was about 17 years old, I graduated from high school and I was sort of asked to leave my home. I, I got kicked out of my house and I was on my own. I didn't get to go to college right away because actually I have no idea why. No one said the word college to me as a kid. I was I was a good student. I liked to learn. I like to write, but uh, for some reason, probably because I was just incredibly poor, no one really thought college would be something I could ever attain, so they never bothered to say it to me. So I wanted to be a teacher for most of my life and a writer. I used to say I wanted to write for a living and teach for pleasure, but I didn't think any of those things would actually happen. So I, I get kicked out of my house. I moved in with some friends. I became a McDonald's manager. I began managing those restaurants. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually... You know, a bunch of sort of terrible things happened to me. I, I get arrested for a crime I did not commit. I end up on trial for that crime. Uh, I'm eventually exonerated, but, you know, that takes a lot of time. I become homeless for a period in my life. I get robbed at gunpoint and sort of tortured at gunpoint in a really terrible set of circumstances. You know, it takes me a long time to eventually sort of climb out of that unfortunate hole that I fell into. But eventually when I get to be 20, I guess 24 years old, I finally make it to college. I start with community college, you know, a two-year two-year college that actually turns out to be the best education I've ever received in my life. And then I move on from community college to Trinity College, which is a 
a more prestigious institution here in Connecticut where I live and uh, I get an English degree and I get a teaching degree and eventually I make it into the classroom. When I'm 29 years old, I become a teacher. So it takes me longer than most people. And the journey was sort of fraught with a lot of uh, problems and a lot of struggles. But happily today, I've been teaching now for 25 years. And as you said, I've published a bunch of books and I stand on stages now and tell stories all over the world. So, you know, life has turned out really wonderful for me. It just, it took longer to get started, I guess, than most people. Indeed, life has turned wonderful. It has taken longer, but it has also come with its own share of having that resilience and that grit. Yes, I can tell you that nothing really bothers me or very few things bother me. I, I watch my colleagues and my friends sort of struggle with things that I feel are incidental and irrelevant because once you've sort of, you know, faced down a gun and been in jail for something you didn't do and, you know, been living on the street, nothing else seems very consequential. And that is a blessing for me. I would not wish it upon anyone, but, you know, it is something I'm able to take away and sort of, I don't feel stressed very much anymore. And uh, I tend to see most problems as inconsequential and easily overcome. And making some of these decisions, these choices, uh, Matt, comes from a place of uh, clarity and security. And for a boy who was so insecure growing up, how did you develop these traits? Well, you know, I think confidence, you know, or the ability to feel secure in yourself comes from facing a challenge and managing to overcome it. You know, you do that often enough. And eventually you start to really believe in yourself. And even as a kid, you know, I was one of five and I was the oldest of five. So I was sort of taking care of my brothers and sisters at a very young age. And I was really taking care of myself. I never had parents who went to school to check on my report card and meet with teachers. So very early on, I was sort of making my life work for me as a child and then as a teenager and then eventually as an adult. You know, so when I was 18, I was completely on my own. I've always been on my own since. I mean, I have my wife, my children, and my family today, but, you know, I have never had a safety net of any kind. And so I think that when we take on challenges and we manage to overcome them and survive struggle, I think that gives us an enormous amount of confidence. And I, and I think I started getting that at a young age by being the person who was taking care of my siblings and taking care of myself. Wonderful. And that led you to do so many of the things that you have kind of done all through your life. Two critical pieces, one authoring the nonfiction books, one is story worthy, the other is some days today. In each of these, we'll dwell a little more on that. Uh, first up, on the power of storytelling, I think a lot of the folks who would want to kind of share their stories, they feel unsure, nervous about sharing their own stories. How do you crush those fears? How do they overcome the fear and gain confidence in their storytelling abilities? Well, you know, it's sort of two things. One is people wonder if the stories they have to share are worth sharing, whether people want to hear them or not. And then the other one is, can I do that well? For the first one, I always tell people that if it means something to you, it can mean something to other people. So as long as it means something in your heart and mind, you think it was important, you think it was consequential in your life, then you can always make it important, consequential and worthy of other people's time. So you can let go of that, which I know is an easier thing to say than do, but but that is the truth. In terms of telling a great story, being able to, to tell excellent stories, that is a learned skill. That is not sort of born skill. People often think that storytellers are come out fully formed and it's just not the case. You know, learning how to tell an excellent story 
is something that you can learn over time, either by, you know, learning from someone like me, learning from my book, or just, you know, by doing what I did, which was the way I got attention as a kid, is I started telling stories. And I quickly realized that the stories that people cared about the most were the ones where I did foolish things. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I was a failure. Those are the stories that make people laugh. They're the ones that draw people in. They're much better than the stories where you sort of brag about yourself. So I learned at a young age that I could get attention through storytelling and over the course of paying attention to what I was saying and, and paying attention to things like movies. I've been really interested in movies ever since a kid because it's essentially storytelling on a screen and I'm trying to do that same thing in the head of people. So paying attention to those things. So if you want to be a great storyteller, you, it, it is a skill that you can easily learn. I turned terrible storytellers into excellent storytellers in a very short period of time. But most important, you should know that the things that happen to you are worth speaking about and people will want to hear them. And it need not be big incidents. It need not be life-changing events for you to be a good storyteller. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the small moments are actually the more interesting moments to share. I'm working on a new solo show. I'm going to speak on stage for an hour to an hour and a half. I just did one this past summer and it was around some pretty big moments in my life. But the new one, I've sort of challenged myself to take the smallest moment that I have, the smallest moment I've ever talked about on stage, and turn that into an entire show. And it's going to work out just fine, because I understand that if I tell you the story about the time I went through a windshield at 17 and died on the side of the road and paramedics restored my life, that's the thing that happened to me. If I tell you that story, you really can't connect with it because you've never done any of those things. You've never been through a windshield. You never died on the side of the road and be brought back to life. But if I tell you a very small story about something that you know doesn't feel very important and yet it's important to me, it's likely to be important to you too. So small stories tend to connect with people better. And so I love those types of stories when I can find them. Talking about small stories and talking about this nice uh, concept and your wonderful TEDx uh, speech, which is Homework for Life. What is this concept? And can you share with our listeners the process of doing this and how have you benefited from this exercise? Sure. It's the most important thing I teach, regardless of where I am, whether I'm teaching my 10-year-old students in, in school or adults or in the corporate world. It's the idea that as we move through our lives, what we tragically do is we throw away our days like they're meaningless. We just forget our days. You know, people talk about time flying. It doesn't really fly. What happens is we don't take account of it. And as soon as you stop taking account of days, they disappear. And then it feels like time flies because you have nothing to hold on to for each one of those days. So homework for life is the idea that every day matters. And there's probably something in that day that is worth holding on to. So in an effort to find more stories to tell back early in my career, when I was sort of running out of ideas, I decided I would sit down at the end of every day. And I would ask myself, what's the most story worthy moment from my day? And regardless of whether something really story worthy happened or it was nothing, I'm going to pick something from that day and I'm going to write it down. Now, I don't believe in writing the whole story down because that's great effort. And people are just going to skip days if they're told that they have to write 500 words every day. So I just use Excel, the, the program. I two columns is a date and on the left. And then I stretch that B column across the screen. And in the B column, just at the length of a computer screen, that's where I write what happened over the course of the day that I think is going to be story worthy. And my goal was to sort of get 12 new stories per year, a new story per month that maybe I would have forgotten about had I not done homework for life. But what happened instead 
and not just for me, for thousands of people all over the world, I discovered that my days are filled with stories, that every day contains moments that I don't want to release, moments I don't want to forget, that I used to forget all the time. It's terrible. Like one of the worst games I can play here, I'll play it with you and your audience right now. You take your age, whatever it is, I happen to be 52. So today we'll subtract 12. So if I do 52 minus 12, I get 40. Whatever your number is, do your math right now. And then think of that year of your life. For me, my 40th year of my life. Think about how many things you remember from that year of your life. You know, you went around the sun on a planet for 365 days. And quite often people can't remember a thing about 12 years ago. You know, I have people in workshops cry all the time because they said in real, they realize they've lost a year of their life. They can't remember a single thing. Does that mean that nothing happened that year? No, of course not. It just means they didn't take account of it. So homework for life, whether you want to be a storyteller or you just want to be a human being who slows time down and notices things that you're not noticing right now, homework for life is, is that process for you to help you see your days better, hold on to your days better, slow time down and start to see the meaning in your life that you're not seeing right now. And that's sort of a quick version of what I do. If they go watch my TED talk, you'll, you'll get more detail on how to do it. But I, I think people should begin doing homework for life today. And this is different from journaling. This is different from reflection. It really is. Yes. Because what we're just looking for is moments, you know, singular moments of meaning. So the simplest of the of the possible moments, I was driving up my street up Francis Avenue. And I looked up in the sky and it's a perfect blue day. It's actually what it looks like in Connecticut today. And uh, I just looked up and realized how lucky we are that we have a blue sky because I happen to know, thanks to my son, that some planets have orange skies and some have sort of a burnt yellow and some have a, a brown sky. And I just thought to myself, how lucky I am that I have a blue sky to look at every day. And then it occurred to me, it took me 52 years to find gratitude for my blue sky. And so when mm -hmm. I came home, I added that to my homework for life. It's not going to be something I ever tell in, on a stage. You know, it's not going to entertain audiences. But I'm never going to forget the moment on Francis Avenue when I finally found gratitude for what has been above my head all my life. That's a tiny moment that I captured. But there's also moments like, things that my wife or my son or my daughter say to me that I never want to forget. Or today I was watching my son uh, in a little league game and he was playing the outfield and he nearly caught a really challenging ball. It was hit towards him and I didn't think he was going to come close to it. And he nearly caught it. It hit the ground. He picked it up and he did a great job throwing and hitting the cutoff man. And then I saw him sort of like punch the air in frustration, you know, because he had come so close to catching it. Instantly, I realized I remember feeling exactly that way when I played Little League. That's going to go in my homework for life. The moment that Charlie got frustrated with himself for missing a catch that he probably couldn't have made anyway because it was so far away. But I loved how much he cared about it. And so that'll become a homework for life moment, which if I don't write down now, a year from now, I'll completely forget because that is how we live our lives. We have to stop living our lives as if these moments don't matter and they're not worth holding on to. I think that piece of homework for life how do you kind of go back, look at it is one element of that. And yes. two, if you were to give a demo for our listeners, if this conversation were to be captured in your homework for life in today's episode or in today's writing, how would you kind of capture this moment? That's interesting. No one's ever asked me that question like that. I guess I would say, you know, for the first time in my life, I am doing a podcast interview with someone from India which is interesting to me. I happen to have many Indian students in my class over the years. 
And so I've learned a great deal about that country and about the culture. And uh, I've done a lot of things with children from India or with Indian backgrounds, but I've never actually done an Indian podcast. And I think it's interesting that it's nearly midnight where you are and it's a beautiful afternoon where I am. So I think I'd probably capture something about the uniqueness of the fact that we are um, chatting from a world away. I, I kind of always am amazed by that. I feel great fortune that we live when we do, because just 20 years ago, you and I would never be able to have this conversation. You know, and I think about writers like Hemingway, who, you know, were writing in the 50s and 60s, and how, you know, they were so limited in terms of who they could speak to and how they could speak. So I think it's kind of extraordinary that I have thoughts and ideas that are going to land somewhere in India and really around the world, because this is a podcast. But that's probably what I would capture for now. But maybe something else will happen over the course of this conversation, which will cause me to think even further than what I have just said. Sure thing. That's a nice little demo out there. Matt, as you do all of these things, I'm intrigued to kind of ask you, where does all of these ideas swell from? How do you have this repository of ideas? You have been writing blogs nonstop. Is it 19 years in the making, you've not stopped posting even a single day? So yeah. how do you kind of gather these ideas, these thoughts to make things happen? Well, you know, I tell people that when we move through our lives, we sort of have two choices. We can sort of passively absorb the world or we can actively engage in the world in a meaningful way. And if you're actively engaging in the world in a meaningful way, that means you're questioning things, you're wondering about things, you're asking yourself questions. One of my favorite questions is why do you do the things that you do? constantly asking yourself, because we tend to have habits and routines and processes and thoughts that we don't really think about their origins. We don't understand why we do some of the things we do. But when we ask that question of ourselves, why do we do the things that we do? Or why do other people do the things that they do? That often can provoke and promote the kind of material that I use to blog every single day and the kind of material that finds its way into novels and nonfiction and stories on stages and things like that. I just think a lot of people sort of don't have the level of curiosity that I wish they would have. A great example is a couple summers ago, I was playing golf with my friend Steve on a, on a day when it was more than 100 degrees out. And I had forgotten my water in the car. And so we were on the sixth or seventh hole and I was really suffering. And Steve turned and he said, hey, I have an extra Gatorade. Would you like one? And I said, no, which was crazy because I really needed one. But I said, no. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we got back to the car after nine holes. We, we quit after nine. And Steve drove away, but I stayed in the car and I didn't move. I said to myself, why did you refuse that Gatorade? Why do you do the things that you do? I have a deep curiosity for why I do the things I do. And it didn't take me long to realize I grew up hungry as a kid. I never had enough food to eat. And so as a child, what I learned to do is when people offered me food, I always rejected it. Because if I accepted it, it would acknowledge that I was hungry. And it's better to be hungry and silent than ashamed of your hunger. So I never like said yes when people offered me food as a kid. And it occurred to me, my God, I'm 50 years old and I'm still rejecting food. Even though I can like give Steve a Gatorade tomorrow, like I have enough food now, I'm still living like a 10 year old boy. I'm still treating the world as if I can't take food because I don't want people to know that I'm hungry. It's a, it's a source of shame. Or in this case, I was thirsty. And that's just sort of the kind of thing that we do. And if we don't pause and find curiosity about the world or our lives, then we just move past it. And then we don't end up having 
ideas to share with people. So I think that's uh, what I tend to be is deeply curious about myself and the world. And that's, again, that's not an innate trait. That is something anyone can do if they just choose to sort of pause and begin asking themselves those questions. That's so beautifully put, Matt. I think we have been talking about uh, story worthy and it's not all. I think there's a lot more to that and we will move to some days today. There's so much of nuggets, golden nuggets out there, uh, Matt. I can't stop at one. Uh, nevertheless, I picked up a few things from that book as well. Would love to kind of uh, get your thoughts, get your moments uh, from that story as well. The first yes. and foremost of that is the paper boy moment. I think this was a time where you accompanied your friend to be that paper boy. Yes. And then again, going back to my earlier point of the clarity that you had at that point of time, this was not what you would want it to do. Tell us about what defined that thinking for you at that point of time. Sure. So my friend Jeff was a paper boy growing up, you know, when I was a kid. And so he would deliver the papers every day. He'd go around, do his paper route. And paper routes were pretty precious when I was a kid. Like you had to buy them from a kid in order to get them and they had to be willing to sell them. And so I was always jealous of Jeff and his paper route because he had a job and I didn't have a job yet, which meant he was making money and I was not making money. And so one day, Jeff invited me to go on his paper route with him. So I, I sort of went on that paper route with him and I got a sense of what he was doing. And, you know, eventually if Jeff uh, was on vacation, I would do the paper route for him. So I started to sort of figure out what the job entailed and how much he was making, you know, how much he was profiting from his efforts. And I quickly realized that this was a terrible job that every single day after school, he had to be home at three. So he couldn't stay after school and participate in sports. And every day, no matter the weather, no matter how he felt, he would have to go out and for, you know, a couple hours, ride his bike around the neighborhood and deliver newspapers. He wasn't making enough money to justify his time. And I suddenly realized that if I'm going to lose my time, if I'm going to trade my time for employment and for work, I'm going to make sure I trade it properly. And Jeff was not trading it properly. And I think that happens to a lot of people. I think people tend to trade away their most precious commodity, time, which they say they believe is the most precious thing. And then they dither it away like it's not. And so they trade it away for scraps rather than really trying to make the most of it. So it was one of those early formative moments when I said to myself, I need to make sure that every minute counts. And when I give my minute over to someone else, they're going to pay me in a way that makes that minute, that lost minute worth it. So it was an early lesson that I've certainly carried forward to today. What a wonderful lesson it is. And adding on to that lesson, you also mentioned something to the line of expanding your finished line. What do you mean by that? You know, I think one of the tricky things people have is they sort of set a goal and they view that goal very specifically. I want to I want to reach this thing, you know, and, and they sort of see it out somewhere in the future. And I think the mistake people make, there's a few of them really when when you're setting goals. One is they're too specific about their goal. You know, so they say I am going to publish a novel someday. And that's the only uh sort of goal that they can see for themselves. And if they don't achieve that goal, they're a failure. What I often say is rather than setting a very specific goal, you need to set a goal on the horizon that's so far away that you can adjust a little bit so that let's say you're in the midst of a novel and you realize that this isn't very good as a novel, but actually it could be a book of short stories, or actually this might make a better play than a novel, or this might make a better children's book 
than an adult novel, oddly. And these things happen to creative people all the time. But so often people get fixated on their one goal. And then the other mistake they make is they get to that goal and they think they're done. You know, and I'm always like, I've reached the first finish line, but what's the next finish line? Like if you're not constantly pushing yourself to the next thing, you sort of stagnate. So this summer I did my first solo show. I, I performed in a very prestigious theater here in Hartford. I did three nights. It was a goal I've had all my life. I had it recorded by, you know, a camera crew and they're editing it and making it look beautiful. It was a goal achieved. And then as soon as I was done, I had two thoughts. The first was, I need to bring this to other theaters and other cities. How do I do that? And so I'm in that process right now of learning how to possibly bring my show to other cities now. But I've also begun that new show, that one that's going to be about the smallest possible moment that I can think of. That was not my original plan. That wasn't a finish line that I saw. My finish line originally was, I want to do a solo show. Let me see if I can make that happen. And now that I did one, I said, well, now that I've done that, can I make another one happen? And can I make it even more challenging for myself by taking something small to do it? And while I'm making that small one, can I also take the one I just did and move it around the country and find new audiences for it? So it's the idea of it's great to land in a place and to celebrate your achievement and to acknowledge a goal accomplished. But if it is um, a goal accomplished without the next finish line in your vision, you're in a lot of trouble because you're going to be done. And I don't think you should ever be done. I think we should always be trying to expand our lives as much as possible. That's a nice concept. But does it also set somebody off a slippery slope that I very recently read something called as Mount Neverest, which is that you climb the ladder of success, that particular goal, but you're never satisfied. Then you kind of look at the next Neverest kind of reach. So is that a dichotomy there that one, you have to have a goal, but two, by virtue of embracing something like this, you're not satisfied with what you would accomplish, but want to have more. You know, my wife will tell you that I'm blessedly unsatisfied at all times, you know, which is to say, I absolutely believe you've read some days today. I believe in celebrating your accomplishments and making every moment along that path, a moment of celebration. And that, that is a really important thing. And I do that all the time. At the same time, I would be terrified at the concept of being satisfied in any way whatsoever. Because satisfaction, I believe, means stagnation. It means you've now reached a point where you have no further ambition or goals because you've reached that level of satisfaction. I know people like that. I know many, many people who are very satisfied with their life. And I suspect that they're going to look back on their life and they're going to see lost opportunities and wasted time and sort of from either fear or laziness or just a lack of vision, they will see that they could have done more than they did. And so for me, I fight against satisfaction at all times. And I love the idea of Mount Everest. You know, I think I will achieve the top of the mountain on the day I die because that is when I can no longer be climbing. But I think that a life should be spent climbing. And there's certainly spots along that mountain where you stop and you take a breath. And then mm -hmm. you look up and you say, all right, what's next? I'm always asking what's next. And if you're not asking what's next, I just think you're stagnating. And I think that's a mistake. And also in your book, uh, you give some great hacks around productivity. And one thing on my mind was I should ask Matt about this around the productivity hacks, which was... While the hacks are great in itself, Matt, at any point, did it rob you of being in the moment? 
how did you strike the balance between optimizing productivity and staying in the moment? Well, what I tell people is that when I'm optimizing productivity, they often think of writing, speaking, consulting, you know, all the things that I do. But I'm often optimizing productivity for time spent with my children, time spent with my wife, time spent with my friends. So a lot of times people see me as sort of a workaholic, but I can tell you today, you know, which is Sunday, September 17th, I woke up very early this morning and I wrote for an hour and then I went and played golf for three hours with my friends. And I went straight from golf to my son's Little League game and I sat next to my wife and we chatted and watched the Little League game together. And then I brought my son over to a skate park because he's on a scooter and he loves skate parking. So I brought him over there. I had my computer with me. I popped it open on a picnic table and I did a little bit of writing and a little bit of watching him. And then I came home to do this interview. And when I'm done this interview, I'm going to have lunch with my wife and then I'm going to go to a golf lesson actually. And then, you know, later on tonight, we're going to have Rosh Hashanah dinner because my wife is Jewish. And all of that is possible because I make sure that when I need to be productive, when things need to be done, I'm doing them in the most efficient way possible. And even more importantly, I'm not dithering my moments away. I'm not wasting time doing nothing or doing something meaningless. So, you know, I tend to think my productivity allows me to be in the moment so that when I'm getting things done, it's affording me meaningful moments in the future. But in terms of being in the moment, like, you know, if I was, I'm trying to think of a chore that I, I folded my daughter's clothing this morning. Actually, when I got up before I wrote, I folded my daughter's clothes. They were in the dryer, but I had a pair of headphones on and I was listening to a podcast on music. And I learned a lot about music this morning, about instrumental music on the billboard charts. So I was, I was in the moment. I was folding clothing. I was active. Mm -hmm. I was helping my family. I was learning something. Maybe what I learned will end up in a blog post or in a book or on stage, you know? So I don't think you can, um, I don't think you have to worry about being in the moment. Just because you're being productive doesn't mean that you can't make that moment meaningful in some way. And another piece that I would want you to share with our uh, listeners is this whole concept of having a compliment list collection. What is yes. it? How can one go about doing it? One of the tragedies sort of related to Homework for Life is that people say nice things to us quite often, very kind things to us. We don't remember them. You know, I know for as an elementary school teacher that you need to say six positive things to a student to negate one negative comment to a student. So yeah, a six to one ratio is oh, what you look for. One. Yeah, six to one. And so that's true even in life. You know, I'm consulting with someone and she tells me a meeting went terrible, that they looked at the marketing deck and they hated it. And then I watched the meeting. You know, they have a recording of the meeting. And the meeting is actually excellent. But at one point in the meeting, one of the vice presidents said a negative thing. It was surrounded by 32 positive things, but we tend to focus on the negative thing. And that's the thing we remember. You could just sort of like put something on social media and 19 people can say something kind to you. And one person can say something awful to you. And the awful thing is the thing that tends to resonate with us the most. That's just the tragedy of being human. You know, it goes back to before civilization, you know, was like it is today, it was really important to remember the negative. Like when we were sort of not living in a society, it was important to remember which berries killed you and what valley contained the tiger and what source of water would make you sick. It was really important to remember the negative in order to stay alive. But today we have sort of doors to keep the tigers out and, you know, grocery stores that give us the food we need and we turn on the faucet and clean water comes out. We don't have to be focused on the negative, but our brains are still wired that way. And so 
what I do and what I tell people to do is when someone says something kind to you, whether they speak it aloud or they send you an email or they give you a physical letter, whatever it is, I preserve them. I keep them in Notion. That's the program that I use. But every time I get an email from a reader or someone who hears one of my stories or one of my clients and they say something nice, I cut and paste it into my compliment file. And it's very, very long now because I've been doing it for years and years. And if I happen to be in a moment where I need some positivity, when I'm feeling a little down, and honestly, that doesn't happen very often, but if I ever need one of those moments, I simply go to that file, you know, I bring up that, that document, and then I just randomly scroll through and I land on a moment where someone treated me very kindly. And I use as many of those as I need to get myself back into the spirit in order to sort of move forward and be productive or be happy or teach my students or give my son the, the attention he deserves those kinds of things. So don't allow the nice things that people say, the kind, meaningful things that people say to be fleeting. We hold on to them and allow them to come back to us again and again because they're worth it. So we all need those reinforcements, those validations. When you really need, you don't have to keep looking for it if you have a repository of it. Right, yeah. My my oldest compliment goes back to 1988. The first, the first compliment in my file is a, is a compliment from January 1st, 1988, a thing that I remember was said to me on that date. And so that's the first compliment in the, in the file for me. I haven't been keeping it since 1988, but I happen to remember some really meaningful moments in my past that I included them as well. So I go all the way back to 1988 with my compliments. Wow. Great, Matt, we have been having a lovely conversation here about storytelling, story worthy, and some days today. We'll slip into a segment in this conversation called as the power of three round. Okay, if we are on, we'll get started with the power of three round, Matt. The first of the power of three question coming to you, Matt, is three routines that's unique to you that optimizes your day. Uh, number one is by the front door of my house, I always keep a book that is easy to read in small increments, like a book of letters or a book of quotes, because I'm constantly waiting for people to come to the door because I'm always ready before them. So I keep that book right there so that I can optimize every moment that I sort of have in my day. Uh, number two is when I wake up in the morning, usually without an alarm, because I've trained myself to sleep well, I make sure that I throw myself out of the bed in the most joyous way possible, regardless of how I feel, because I want my body and my brain to believe that I am joyous, even if I don't actually feel joyous at that very moment. And I think that's an important way to really start your day in an incredibly positive way. And number three is, oh, something that people do, but not very often is I end every shower that I take uh, with cold water, which actually stimulates the brain and the body. We often take a, a hot shower, which is fine, but if you end your shower hot, what it essentially does is it relaxes your body and relaxes your mind. And unless I'm going to bed, when I want my body and my mind relaxed, I'm often taking a shower in the middle of the day after a workout and I want to get cranking right away. So I take a cold shower or a partially cold shower to get me moving. So those things help me optimize my day. This is a 90 second shower? Yeah. yeah. Well, yes, <laughs> I try to get it under 100 seconds too. I count out loud to um, 100 and see if I can get it under 100. Or if I'm working on a story, I'll actually work on a story in the shower and allow myself a longer shower. But most of the time, we don't need to spend any time in the shower. It's wasted time. Awesome. Get it clean and get out. <laughs> cool. The next one, Matt, three ideas or actions 
your 100 year old will be telling you to do today oh uh one is to make sure i say yes to everything even if it involves difficult driving you know i was just invited to do a comedy festival in new york on a wednesday night which is going to be a challenging drive and part of me really wants to say no but the 100 year old self will say no one's going to ask you to do that when you're older so do it now so that's one thing i absolutely have to say yes to uh number 2 is my son is often trying to get me involved in things like right now he's scootering he's he's stunt scootering and he's trying to get me involved i have to stop worrying about getting hurt and start doing things regardless of whether i'm going to get hurt because the alternative is i'm going to be stagnant and that's a terrible idea so my 100 year old self would tell me to do that and my 100 year old self would tell me to find a way to eat more vegetables because i don't eat enough fruits and vegetables it's just going to be a better and healthier life for me if i can find a way to do that so i should be doing that as well the sage 100 year old there yeah exactly okay. so the book author recommendations uh stephen king's on writing which is the best writing book you can read and i think everyone in the world should be writing so i i highly recommend that um book for people to read as often as possible treasure island by robert louis stevenson which is a novel that i loved as a kid and i also love as an adult it's just a fantastic adventure story that has remained in my heart uh forever since i was a little kid and i just i just think it's a it's a beautiful book and i guess oddly the third one you know i'm going to say the bible and i am not a religious person i would like to believe in god and i unfortunately have been unable to believe in god but i think one of the struggles we have in the world today is that people particularly politicians and religious leaders they tend to uh take their religious texts and sort of pick and choose the the things they want the believers and their followers to read I'm a person who's actually read the Bible from front to back three times. And so I know all the things in the Bible that the ministers and the priests don't ever talk about because they're very ugly. And so I think if we actually invest in the reading of our religious texts, we can be more informed and be less misguided, we will say, by people who have um nefarious purposes. So I I think if you're going to be a religious person or even not a religious person, you should probably read your religious texts from front to back in the way that they were written good one matt three micro experiments our listeners can consider doing well one i've said so let's do this one right away start taking a cold shower don't take a cold shower actually make the last 10 seconds of your shower cold and then try to stretch it as much as you can you you might not get all the way to cold and i haven't honestly sometimes i do if i'm really hot but make the last 10 and then 20 and then maybe 30 seconds cold that's really going to help you unless you're getting ready for bed then don't do it at all here's another one that i've started doing someone recommended it when you're brushing your teeth um spend you should brush your teeth for 2 minutes so spend the first minute uh with one foot in the air and the second minute with the other foot in the air because oftentimes people end up falling when they're older because they lose their balance they have a less of a sense of balance as they get older and that can actually land them in a the hospital and oftentimes falls lead to death my favorite author of all time kurt vonnegut fell off a step and died And so what we have to do as we get older or regardless of how old you are really is to make sure our sense of balance is excellent as possible. And so when I started brushing my teeth and lifting up my right foot, I could hold it up for maybe 5 seconds and then I'd sort of have to put it down because I couldn't maintain my balance. Now I can lift my right foot and brush my teeth for a minute or 2 minutes and I can sort of maintain my balance. So that's been an easy way 
to improve my balance by com- connecting two things together as one, which is just really, it's a really beautiful thing. And the third one I will say as a micro experiment is, well, fix your sleeping, because I'm sure you're not sleeping properly. So let's just start with the simplicity of get yourself a, a white noise machine, uh, whatever it is. It's It can just be your Amazon Echo that produces white noise or get a machine that does it. But no one sleeps well enough. And I'll tell you, I am an outstanding sleeper because I take it very seriously. And one of the things you can do is if you get a white noise machine, it signals to your body that it's time to sleep. You turn it on and your mind goes, oh, it's sleep time because you've sort of given it this, this auditory trigger. And it also eliminates all noise over the course of the night. So every time your house creaks or, or a horn goes off or all of those noises sort of get filtered away by the white noises. So it'll increase the amount of sleep you get by both allowing you to fall asleep quicker and keeping you asleep throughout the night. So focus on your sleep, but just start with that. It's a cheap way to improve your sleep. Great micro experiments there. Thanks, Matt. Yep. Last of the power of three round, Matt, what has been your three, the most significant three life lessons? Okay, well, one is certainly when asked to make a decision, look ahead to your 100-year-old self and ask yourself what that version of yourself would want you to do. Uh, Because, you know, the person who is at the end of their life is the person who should be talking to you about how to live your life because we are unreliable as human beings. We, We often choose pleasure in the moment rather than sort of a longer view in terms of how to make our lives extraordinary. So asking the 100 year old version of myself what I should do has been a defining aspect of my life. Uh, When I was 11, I had a teacher and I can't remember which one it was, but a teacher said to me, a positive mental attitude is your key to success. And I sort of, for some reason, absorbed that at 11. I've been saying it all my life and I do believe it. Uh, I believe that when you can look at the world positively by choosing to look at the world positively, by seeking out positivity and being relentless in your search for it, I think you're going to be a happier person. I tend to be a person who doesn't complain very much, who tends to have a lot of energy, who tends to see the world with possibility rather than the way many people see the world. And I'm an optimist, and I think that is the way to live. So a positive mental attitude is your key to success. That's number two. And I guess for number three, let's talk about optimism, because that's a lesson I just taught my students recently. It's interesting because let's say in a month, we are waiting for an outcome to happen. Let's say in a month, we're going to find out whether we get a job or not, right? If we are optimistic about it, that means for the month, we are going to feel good and positive about the possibility of getting that job. And if we don't get it, what that means is we've spent 29 days in positivity, and then we're going to have that day of negativity where we discover we don't get the job. If you choose to be pessimistic about it and doubt that you're going to get the job or not really believe you're going to get the job, what happens is you spend 29 days suffering over the idea you're probably not going to get the job, and then you also don't get the job. So the optimist actually gets to spend more time in happiness and joy. Admittedly, we'll be disappointed in the end, but I will take 29 days of hopeful joy and a moment of disappointment as opposed to 29 days of suffering and pessimism only to discover the suffering and pessimism were warranted. So if you can start to have a more optimistic view on outcomes, you will be a happier person. The outcomes might not change, but you will be happier on your path toward those outcomes, regardless of how they turn out. 
that's how you show up in a town full of losers that you are there to win. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you're an optimistic person, I mean, so many things happen from it. You know, I just think you draw people towards you. You tend to have more friends. You tend to have more people who want to work with you. Uh, you tend to be the kind of person people want to spend time with. So I, I just think it's the pot. It's the right way to be. And people often laugh at me for my optimism. They think I'm sort of silly and that I have, you know, I see the world through rose colored glasses. And I say, I do. I see the world through rose colored glasses because that's the way I think we should see the world. And if we're disappointed, that's fine. But like live a positive and happy life until that disappointment comes. So very true. Tell us the importance of this phrase, know your story, tell your story, and you can finish my line. Sure. Uh, oh, what is, what's the last line? I say it in so many different ways. Believe know your story. story I... Know your story, tell your story, and listen to your story. Oh, yeah, and listen to your story. Sometimes I say believe your story, too. You know, I think that it's so important. I think that we plow through our lives, and if we don't pause, look back, reflect and craft stories from the things that we have done. We don't give ourselves the credit for what we have done or, or for the things we've overcome or for the struggle we've suffered. And I think time sort of falls away. And so, you know, a perfect example is when I was homeless, I was homeless essentially because people who could have helped me chose not to. And for a long time, that was a really difficult thing for me. It was sort of an infection in my life. Every time I thought about it, it made me feel rotten and unwanted and, and bad. And then one day I decided to tell a story about my homelessness and some magical things happened. Uh, first, it became a story which had a beginning and an end. So it no longer infected parts of my life because I, it became a chapter in my life rather than an infection in my life. So giving moments in your life a beginning and end is really powerful. And then by re-examining my homelessness, it is true that people who could have helped me didn't, which is why I became homeless. But people who didn't have to help me, who chose to help me become not homeless anymore. And I had sort of like forgotten about that, that there were people who actually came along and saved me. So for every person that ignored me, there was a person who saved me. And that's important to remember. And then the fact that I sort of overcame it, that I managed to survive that time and I found meaning and strength in it was something that did not occur to me until I decided to craft it as a story. And then I started telling that story. And so often I would tell that story on a stage and people would come up to me and say, I was living in my car for a year and I was too embarrassed to talk about it. But now I feel like maybe I can because you did. And I tell my students that story every year. And a couple of years ago, I told that story and I found out that one of my students had been living in a car for about three months and she was worried she might have to move back into the car and maybe she couldn't come to school anymore because of it. And so I was able to sort of alleviate my student of any worry and concern and help that family maintain the home that they were living in, the apartment they were living in, the school was able to support them in a way. So you look for the stories so that you can find meaning in them, so that you can make them meaningful to other people, so that you remember the moments of your life in a really significant way, and then you get to share them with other people, whether it's on a stage or at dinner, or even just telling yourself the story. It's so important. You are the most important audience for every story that you tell because listening to yourself tell a story reminds you of the things you have done. And so often we just leave those things behind and we keep moving forward and that is a tragedy. And the belief in these stories? You, you want to believe in yourself. 
And, you know, we talked about that confidence. And one of the ways that we can find confidence and belief in ourselves is we can believe in our stories. We can believe that the path that we have walked is worthy of speaking of. And then it has significant moments that should be captured and, and remembered, you know, you know, when I am gone someday, I, I don't like to think about the possibility that I could die. I like to think I'm going to live forever. But if I accidentally die, my children are going to be able to tell countless stories of me to their children, because I'm constantly sharing my life with my kids and with my wife and with my students and with audiences around the world. So believing in your stories means believing in yourself. And, and it means believing that the moments you're living are worth being remembered. And all of that, I think, is important. Oh, very true. Matt, this has been some fantastic conversation. Like I said, the, I couldn't have waited for that excitement and the excitement still continues. This show is all about creating ripples of inspiration. Before we sign off, what's your Inspire Someone Today message to all our listeners? Oh, a message to inspire them today? So Inspire Someone Today is the name of the podcast. Yeah. So what's your message for all the listeners of this podcast. Oh, okay. Well, I guess try to keep the number 1,440 in your mind. That's the number of minutes that you have in a day. And so often in life, we tend to think that we can only accomplish things in 30 or 60 minute increments. And so often in life, our, our lives are actually lived in nine minute increments or 12 minute increments or 22 minute increments. And so be inspired by the idea that you have more time than you've recognized before. And if you just start looking for it, you'll suddenly discover that your day is richer in possibilities than I think you have noticed. So spend today and spend tomorrow noticing those small in-between times and ask yourself what you're doing with those in-between times. Because once you start using them wisely, whether it's productively or, or you know, meaningfully or spiritually, whatever you choose to do with them, we just tend to have more time than we think. And I think that's a great thing to know that you have more time than you previously understood. And you just have to sort of open your eyes and pay attention to that. We have more time than what you think. That's a message from the master storyteller, Matt Dix. Matt, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing uh, your words of wisdom, your experiences with me and all my listeners. I appreciate that. Thank you for the opportunity. It really means a lot to me. It was one heck of an episode, isn't it, listeners? From having your own compliment list to creating your own story, homework for life, to talking about mindsets, building confidence. I'm sure you enjoyed listening as much as I did conversing with Matt. Well, before we sign off, looking forward to have you back for episode 100. Lots in store. Feel free to share this episode and come back to listen to episode 100. Until then, keep inspiring. Thank you for listening into today's edition of Inspire Someone Today. It's been a privilege to bring in these conversations. If you like this episode and have any feedback or comments, do mail me at inspiresomeonetodaypodcast at the rate gmail.com. Inspiring someone is like creating ripples around us. If you like what to listen, feel free to share them and let's create ripples of inspiration. Do not forget to follow me on my Instagram handle at the rate Inspire Someone Today podcast for all the latest updates. This is Srikant, your host, signing off and until next time, keep inspiring.